0: You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast as we go through a series on the life and work of Jesus. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Uh, we are gonna finish our series this week. Uh, it's called The Life and Ministry of Jesus. Last week, we talked about um, the, the trials and then even the path to the cross, and we got that beautiful example of uh, Simon Uh, taking up his cross and following Jesus in a very literal way that we get to do figuratively. Um, So uh, tonight, we are actually going to be in uh, John chapter 19 and a little bit in Matthew chapter 27 and a little bit in Luke chapter 24, there is a lot of scripture tonight, so uh, hang with me, but I know we'll get through it. Uh, there's some incredible stuff in here, um, and we won't even cover probably half of what you could cover if you really go through every uh, element of the crucifixion through the four gospels. So we're going to take a look at it through a couple of the different gospels, and uh, then of course we'll, we'll end with the resurrection to really seal up our series here and put that final stamp of uh, God's love. Uh, on this series, let's pray as we get into the Word. Lord Jesus, thank you, uh, thank you, Lord. That um, Lord that you have uh, brought us on this incredible journey as we've talked about your life, Lord and uh, Lord. We know that uh, Lord you've taught us so much about who you are and your love for us, and that you want to continue to teach us, Lord. So Lord tonight we just ask Lord that through your Holy Spirit, Lord that you would teach us that you would guide us through your word, Lord, and uh, Lord, that we would grow in our relationship with you, Lord, and that we would be stronger witnesses of who you are as well. So thank you, Jesus, we love you, and we just ask you to minister to us through your word, in your name, amen, amen. So you guys know I always like stories, and uh, so I wanna start a little bit with a story because we're gonna be talking about the cross tonight, okay? And a couple of years ago I was in Target now, whatever you think about Target, either way, that's where I was. Okay? I was in Target, okay? and I was checking out, and I saw a girl at the checkout line, and she had this fresh tattoo on her arm, all right? and it completely showed she couldn't have it covered up because she had just gotten it. And so it was a strange tattoo, uh, and it really drew my attention. And so it was a glass of alcohol, some pills, and a syringe. And I thought, whoa, that's rough, right? So I said, so what's your tattoo mean? And she said, it's called Death Cocktail. She said, I was in a really dark place when I got this. So my boyfriend and I both got matching tattoos of Death Cocktail. Just the total like, oh my gosh, the darkness. So I began to talk to her a little bit and she basically told me to shut up. She said, it's really none of your business and you just need to stay out of my life. I was like, okay. So I packed up my groceries and I went out to my car and I began to pray for her. And I just sat in my car almost weeping, praying for this poor lost girl. Um, So I've been through with people that have walked through suicidal ideology and all of these types of things. And I just thought, Lord, please help this young lady. For the rest of her life, or until she gets it covered up, she's got death cocktail as a constant reminder on her arm. A constant reminder on her arm. And so we think about the cross, the cross. And it's an interesting thing because most of us will wear it on a chain around our neck or maybe we get it tattooed on her arm or whatever the thing is that we, in the way that we look at the death of Jesus, But if you went back to first century AD and you had a cross around your neck, or if you had one tattooed up on your arm, they would look at you and ask you the same questions that I asked that girl in that checkout line. Why do you have that tattooed on your body? If you went to the moment before Jesus was crucified on it, before it became that emblem of suffering and shame that led to redemption, The cross was a horrifying, horrifying symbol of punishment, just like that syringe. It was like the death penalty given to people, right? It's wild because it's through Jesus, it's through this story tonight that the meaning of the cross will take a totally different turn, a totally different turn. It no longer has that same meaning to us anymore. Today, we wear it on our cross. I don't want you guys to be taking them off in the middle of service, right? As people are like, get that thing off and get this thing covered up, whatever. No, that's not what we're talking about because it has a different meaning today because of what he did. And that's what we're gonna talk about tonight, okay? So uh, I've seen that girl since that time, so uh, I know that she hasn't made that decision yet, and I still pray that at some point that God will capture her heart uh, as she has this emblem of suicide, of death upon her, because that one's not taking another meaning, right? So let's read about the crucifixion, John 19, verses 16, uh, and we're gonna read down to verse 22 to start, okay? And it says, so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Arama- Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Jesus, king in every language, king in every language. This is so cool because it's put, it was common practice in that day that above the person's head on the cross, okay, they would put what they were guilty of. Jesus was guilty of being king. He was guilty of being king. And it said so in Aramaic. It said so in Latin. It said so in Greek, in all of these languages so that everybody there, because there were people that spoke these languages all around, everybody there would know that Jesus was the king, was the king. It wasn't only written in a language that the Hebrew people could understand. It was written in a language that everyone can understand. And this is something that that Pilate did. He knew that Jesus was innocent. What else could he have written above Jesus' cross? Innocent? No. King. King of the Jews. King of the Jews. Pilate saw something different. Pilate knew something different. He was still a Roman. He was still a wretched man. He was still played part in sending Jesus to the cross. But this time, remember last time he said, okay, you guys do whatever you want. I'm done. I'm washing my hands. This time, they say, take that down right now. And this time, he stood his ground, and he said, it is written how it's written, and it's staying there. This time, he stood up. And forever, king of the Jews, in all the languages, Because Jesus is the king in every language. If we look throughout the rest of scripture, we see that in 1 Timothy 6.15, Paul's referring to these sacrifices on the cross and he calls Jesus the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we know Revelation because we all studied it together, Right? Jesus is referred to by John in the book of Revelation. In chapter 17, in verse 14, he calls him the king of kings and lord and lords. Uh, and, um, and then again in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, in the second coming of Christ, it says, there on his thigh was tattooed king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is king. It doesn't matter what language. It doesn't matter where you are, who you are. Jesus is is king, and he's king above every other king. Let's keep reading. Verse 23 and 24, uh, down through 27, I'm sorry. Uh, "'When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, "'they took his garments and divided them into four parts, "'one for each soldier, also his tunic. "'But the tunic was seamless, "'woven into one piece from top to bottom.' So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross was Jesus, where his mother and his uh, mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopsis, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples, who he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own house. Here, we have prophecy fulfilled and character revealed. Okay, so let's look at what's going on here. So it's a fulfillment of prophecy, Psalm 22. Last week, I said, read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 and Isaiah 53. I hope you did your homework because I'm gonna make quick references to these, okay? Psalm 22, verse 18, is where this prophecy, they divided my my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is a beautiful psalm, okay, that depicts the crucifixion of Jesus long before it happened, okay? Long before it happened, all right? Before they were even crucifying people, all right? So uh, David wrote this psalm, and it says, They would cast lots for his clothes. So this is a common practice, right? But it also shows the heart and nature of man. Here you have these men, Jesus, who's completely innocent, being nailed to a cross. And these soldiers, yeah, this is everyday work right here blood gushing out as they nail them to the cross and them beaten and bruised and we're walking up this path and we're, we're whipping them and we're making fun of them and all these things and all I'm worried about is what piece of clothes do I get? Clothing do I get? Do I get the big one? Right? Do I get the big one? Please give me the big one, give me the big one and here he's dying in the background and so you see the nature of man Man is wretched, his heart is wicked. But then you look at Jesus hanging on the cross. His hands had been nailed through in here. In the Bible, hand is from the elbow all the way to the fingertip, right? They still measure horses that way, if I'm not mistaken, right? He's five hands tall. And, and that means from here to here five times. That's about 18 inches roughly, right? So, so it's nailed in here because this wouldn't hold anything, you'd fall right out. So it's nailed in here, which is worse. I don't wanna get too graphic, but if you put a big old spike in there, you're gonna break some of those little bitty, tiny bones inside of there. Horrible, horrifying. And they're playing games for his clothes. But Jesus, in the midst of this, while he's watching these men play game for his clothes, looks over here and sees the suffering that his earthly mother was going through but he also sees the suffering that his disciples are going through. And he looks and he says, hey, you, you're gonna take care of her and he's gonna take care of you, okay? There we go. Compassion. Even in the midst of suffering, the character of God never changes. Even while he's hanging on the cross, his compassion still flows out. So we have the character of man playing games while Jesus suffers, and we have the character of God, compassion for all of those around him, right? So um, we see this incredible love that uh, Jesus has for the people that are around him, okay? Um, Later on, he'll say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing, okay? So we see even the greatest suffering, the psalmist would say uh, about Jesus in 136, he says, give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. You guys read that Psalm? That Psalm's incredible, right? It gives you all of these things and every single phrase ends with, for his love endures forever. For his love endures forever. I didn't count how many times it says it, but it's at least a dozen. For his love endures forever. I think the point of the psalm is for you to know that his love endures forever. Even while hanging on the cross. That incredible love. Father, forgive them. They nailed me. They're spitting The Scripture says that that they walked around him and threw insults at him. The people on the ground, the soldiers, everyone around, including the two thieves on his sides, they were throwing insults, and Jesus is like, they don't even know what they're doing. He had the power to strike them dead. He had the power to, to put a curse upon them. Father, forgive them. Yeah, I want to make sure she's taken care of. I want to make sure that that these guys are good. The compassion, the love, the forgiveness, the character of God revealed in the midst of his suffering. Now we're going to turn to the book of Matthew because I think this part is really important and I want you to see this. All right. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 46. And it says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. He said, Eli, Eli, Lemma sabakatini. I don't know if that's right or not. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, You might recognize this statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 yet again, Psalm 22. I said you might recognize it because I gave it to you for homework, so only one person is going yes, yes. Okay, thank you for doing your homework. I'm kidding. Okay, uh, so Jesus became my sin, my sin for my righteousness that I may become righteous, okay? He became my sin right there on the cross. So let's talk about what's going on here. This is the most difficult part on the cross, okay? We talked about it before. Peter, when he went to the cross, history tells us that he went to the cross, he was singing hymns. He was singing. He was excited about going to the cross that he was counted worthy to even die for his Lord, but he didn't want to die the same way, so he was crucified upside down. He told his wife, don't worry about me. I'm going home today. Yet Jesus swept great drops of blood as he went to the cross, and this is why, people, right here, as he quotes the Psalms right here, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I call this the momentary separation. Second Corinthians 5.21 says uh, that Jesus didn't carry our sins to the cross. He became our sins on the cross. Now, here's the interesting thing. We look at Psalm 22 and we go, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, Jesus quoted that. But if you read that little section that's all clumped together there, it goes down to verse three. And in verse three, it starts talking about the holiness Of God, which is a reference to the fact that here Jesus hanging on the cross becoming sin, the holiness of God. Because Jesus became our sin, he had to disconnect to be able to die for our sins. Because he became our sin, he didn't carry him in a black trash bag, guys. He's not like a Santa Claus that took all of our sins to the cross for us and said, hey guys, I'm gonna go throw these away for you." No, he literally became the sins. Imagine every murder, every rape coming on Jesus at the same time. Every pedophile, every lie, every bit of pornography, every little bit of thing that we do every single day, every blasphemy poured upon him at the same time. And it's in that moment that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It would be for this split moment in all of history that this would ever happen and it will never happen again. The Godhead has been united, it has been together, it has been one God for all of eternity. But this is the greatest sacrifice ever. For Jesus to have become man and become sin and have to be pulled apart from the holiness. Now, the good news is that glory is immediately put back together upon his death and resurrection. Okay, so we've got nothing to worry about there. But he had to. This is why Jesus sweat great drops of blood when he was in the garden because the holiness of God. So he did all of this. The Bible says he became my sin so that you and I might have the righteousness of God in us. We get to be righteous because he became sin. We get to be righteous. Paul said in, in Colossians chapter one, verse 22, he says that through Jesus's body, through his work on the cross, I am called a saint I have been made pure because of what he did on that cross. Because he took my sin. He became my sin. He died. He put it away. He put it away. And I think that's where that agony came from as we studied Gethsemane. I told you when we were studying Gethsemane, we were gonna talk about this again in the cross. When, when he's sweating those great drops of blood, when he's in that agony, agony, Father, take this cup from me. This is the cup. This is the cup, this, this separation. Darkness, three hours of darkness. Silence, separation. Guys, this is the very definition of hell. Darkness, separation from God, silence, the very definition of hell, sins overwhelming. Jesus has experienced this wrath for you and for me. Let's go back to the book of John. And this is a beautiful, beautiful picture in John 28 through 29. John 19, 28 through 29. Give you a second to flip your phone there. I hear some pages. That's good. I just love the good old-fashioned sound of Bible pages turning. I just love it. So good, right? John 19, 28 through 29. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, sour wine is this really cheap wine. Today, think of it like box wine or, or one of those like really cheap $3 bottles of wine that will just give you a terrible, terrible headache. This is what the guards drank, Okay. And so there was some remnant of compassion in them because when they said, when Jesus said, I thirst, they felt something. They felt something. And you will see later on that some of these guys actually stand back after all of this happens and go, surely this is, he is who he said he was. And they'll just be in awe of what's happening. So when he said he thirsted, there's something moved in them to actually try to get something for him. Because that excruciating pain that he was experiencing on the cross, that was part of it. But also that, that terrible thirst of hanging there in the sun. They're in the middle of the desert. They walked him up to a hill in the middle of the sun. Three hours of darkness comes. The thirst I thirst. So they try to give him some cheap wine, some cheap wine, okay? And then Jesus, all right, received the sour wine and said, it is finished. Now, Pastor Daniel, many years ago, I think maybe two or three years ago, uh, I think you did a whole message on this word, didn't you? Uh, te tetelestai, tetelestai. I gave myself a pronunciation guide here and still don't know if I'm saying it right. Tetelestai. Tetelestai. It's a Greek word meaning paid in full. But it has a lot deeper meaning, which is really cool, okay? So this word has so many meanings. It has so many meanings. And Jesus says this on the cross. He says, Tetelestai. Tetelestai, okay? He only says it one time. I said it twice for effect, right? So in the common language, the word was used when a servant finished a job. He'd go to his master and say, Tetelestai. Jesus... Was a servant. He called himself a servant through the whole th- whole thing. So he's looking at his father, saying, "Te telestai." As a servant, I'm finished. It is finished. The job you gave me, it is finished. Okay. That's the servant definition of it. It's also used by a priest when he's examining the lamb sacrifice, meaning it was worthy, complete, and unblemished sacrifice. He's doing this investigation, this this lamb or whatever sacrifice was was given, and to give that seal of approval, meaning that the examination was finished and it was approved, and he'd give the sacrifice back for them for it to be sacrificed. Tetelestai, he is prepared, he is worthy. He made the cut, he gets to be fully sacrificed. He gets to be the payment, Tetelestai. Jesus as priest and and lamb sacrifice. Jesus as priest and lamb sacrifice, complete, all right? Tetelestai. It was also used by a debtor and the debtee. So if I was to buy a house from you, I didn't have enough money. So we we write up a, a, a loan agreement, okay? And when that loan agreement is finished, you write Tetelestai on the front of it and you post it on my door so that everybody can see it, that that debt has been paid in full. The debt has been paid in full. Jesus owed nothing, yet he paid our debt in full. He had no debt, he had no debt. He would have been the debtor. We are the detti, but we had no means to pay it back. So the debtor came and paid his own price. Okay, te telesti, te telesti. It's also used by an artist. When they're creating their masterpiece, they put the final stroke on it, and they stand back and they go, finally, te telesti, finally. Te telestai. What a beautiful picture. What such a deep meaning in a single word. Such deep meaning in a single word for what Jesus was doing right there. Man, he was putting that piece in the puzzle that made the whole thing make sense. That made the whole thing make sense. Man's redemption, that final piece of man's redemption put together to finish God's masterpiece, his plan for us to be able to be back with him again. That beautiful, final, completed work. Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, that last piece of the puzzle. How beautiful. After Jesus yielded up his spirit, it says, then he bowed his head and he yielded up his spirit. Three miracles happened at this moment. As he yielded up his spirit, the Bible says, okay, uh, these three miracles happened at this moment. The veil, okay? If you know the temple, the way the temple was set up, in the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, Now, the Holy of Holies was surrounded by all of these cloths and stuff. And on the inside, it was these beautiful uh, blue cloths with like angels embroidered into all of it. Okay, then you had the Ark of the Covenant in the middle, which represented the throne of God. And it basically looked like a picture of heaven. When we see John's description in chapter four of heaven of the book of Revelation, we see that it's the angels all around and then all around the throne of God. And that's what the tabernacle or the temple at this point actually looked like in the center of the Holy of Holies. But there was a huge curtain that, that closed the doors of this thing off. And they said they actually used like a, a leather kind of a manatee uh, is, is really what the, the Bible is talking about there of a sea cow. And it was it's thick, it's tough, it's durable. And if you've ever seen a manatee, uh, you usually see these scars on their back where the boat motors got them, right? But they're really tough, Their skin is really tough, so they can endure a lot more than a regular uh, animal would be able to endure in that. If you had another animal like that, it would kill them instantly. But these things are tough. So the outside layer was actually covered in this type of leather, right? Now, these, these things were about seven inches thick of layered leather and cloth, these walls were this veil was that covered off the entryway to this room. And that veil was torn from the top to the bottom. It was torn from the top to the bottom. That's to show us that it was God himself that tore it. He tore it from the top to the bottom. That thing didn't rip from the bottom because it was God reaching down to man, opening up the access to the throne room. We see in Hebrews chapter four, it says, now because of our great high priest, we can enter into the throne room of God with our petitions, in our time of need of his grace and his mercy. We get to go in. That veil was torn when Jesus said to and gave up his spirit. That veil was torn. The other miracle that happened here is uh, that there was a great earthquake. There was a great earthquake at this moment. And it says that graves opened up. Now, that's weird, isn't it? And then if you continue reading on, it actually says at some point, and we don't know exactly when, most people believe that was possibly a couple of days later that these graves basically broke open at this point in this thing. And then it says the saints rose out of them and started walking around. That's wild, y'all, right? That's wild, Okay, so, and, and so we see at that point, the graves of the saints were opened up by this earthquake and we see the resurrection of the saints. And so Warren Wiersbe has a quote about this that I really like. He's one of my very favorite commentators. And he says, the torn veil indicates that he conquered sin. The earthquake suggests that he conquered the law and fulfilled it and the resurrection the resurrections prove that he had defeated death in that moment. All of those things happen to show those various things, okay? He says that the earthquake is very similar to what happened when Moses was receiving the law on the mountain. God's presence was there and the people started shaking, okay? So uh, that's what the scripture says in the book of Exodus. Right, So he said that he believes that is the law fulfilled in this moment through these three miracles. Those resurrections is defeating death and the veil conquering sin, giving man access to God. What a beautiful depiction. What a beautiful thing. Tetelesti, all in one word. Jesus made all of that. He did all of that, all in one word. Oh, the power of a word, Right? The power of a word, right? All right, let's keep reading uh, verse 31. Okay, it says, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross of the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate to break their legs, uh, for their legs to be broken, that it may be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the others who had been crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture may be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Again, in Psalm 22, it talks about he was pierced through for our transgressions, okay? Uh, Isaiah 53 talks about this as well, all right? The suffering servant. And so uh, as we look at Jesus's death, as his pierced side... We were talking about this the other day, a couple of Sundays ago, the sacrifices in the temple. As Jesus walked down the Valley Kidron heading for the Garden of Gethsemane, he would have to cross the Brook Kidron and the Brook Kidron at this time of year would flow with blood and water. Why? Because there were so many sacrifices made on the altar that the priest had to clean the altar with water. And it would run down a little thing that had been dug out, down through the floor of the temple, underneath of the temple, out into the brook Kidron. So the priest would use water to wash away that sacrifice of sin. So water and blood mixed together was a representation that the sin sacrifice had been made. It was a representation that the sin sacrifice had been made, just like in the Passover. And so Jesus here, hanging on the cross, your sins are washed away. Your sins are washed away. And he says, "I've removed them as far as the east is from the west." In First John chapter 1 uh, verse 17, uh, Jesus talks about I mean, uh, John talks about the fact that our sins are washed away from us. Baptism is literally just a symbol or a representation of you being uh, buried together with Christ and raised again in him, that your sins are washed away. It's an example of that actually happening, of the cleansing of our sins as blood and water poured out his side. It was a representation of our sins, that blood sacrifice being washed away, okay? Uh, I think that's such a, a beautiful uh, story there. Acts twenty two seventeen, 17, Paul also says, okay, that our sins are washed away. I love how God's picture, his story, is so detailed and so complete. Every element of it, the words that he used, all so deep in meaning, the pierced side, not just blood, blood and water. Now there's a lot of theories as to why medical science says the stress of this could have caused the heart to explode. And the exploding heart would actually cause the body, which is mostly water anyway, to fill that cavity of his chest to fill up with blood and water so that when pierced, it would run out. But however it happened, the meaning is the same. It was the water that washed away the blood sacrifice every year at Passover. And this Passover lamb was gonna be no different. He was gonna fulfill every aspect of the Passover, even to the washing away of the blood on the cross. The beautiful part of the story, what an incredible thing we have learned, but it's not the end, it's not the end. A whole bunch of men have gone to the cross and died for a cause, tons of men. Lots of zealots that hated the Romans, ended up crucified because they believe that there should be a king in Israel that actually represented Israel. That's what zealot meant, that they were against the Romans, that they wanted a king in Israel, and so many of them went to the cross. That's not who Jesus was. That's not why he went to the cross. He went to the cross because he loves you, and he loves me. But here's the difference from Jesus and everyone else. He's the only one that came out of the grave. He's the only one. All these other men that went to the cross for a cause, their cause was temporary. And as soon as they were dead, their cause died down. Even in the scriptures, the wise counsel was, let them deal with him, whatever, just let them go. It doesn't even matter. You'll see it in the book of Acts when you read the book of Acts. Their leader died. And just like every other cause, as soon as their leader dies, they'll all start dispersing. Give them a couple of months. I don't think that Gamaliel had any idea that 2,000 and some odd years later we'd be standing here talking about him and talking about what he said in that moment. The only one of these men that died for a cause on a cross that ever came from the dead was Jesus. And this is what sets him apart. This is what makes him different. Luke 1 through six. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find a body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood, at, stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and, uh, and bestowed their face to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. He is not here, but has risen. Guys, Jesus is alive. He's not on a cross. He's not in a grave. He is risen. He is risen. This is a beautiful thing. These angels were there. He, they told him. they told them, they're like, he told you he was going to rise. He told you it was coming. He is not here. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's alive. Jesus is alive. He has resurrected. He has resurrected. And because of that resurrection, you and I get to be here today. You and I get to sit in the presence of the holy God. Remember, sin can't be in the presence of holiness, but you sinful, get to be in the presence of holiness because of the blood of Jesus, because he conquered death. That way we can be there in communion with the holy God again because he sees us as saints, because your sins have been washed away. When he died on that cross, it wasn't just the ones that had happened, it's the ones that will happen. 2,000 years later, we're still sinning and Jesus died for them then too not just the stuff you, that had been done, but the stuff that would be done. But the stuff that would be done. We have this awesome opportunity every week to prepare our hearts for communion. There's so much that we could talk about in the burial. There's so much that we could talk about in the resurrection. Jesus walked around for 40 days just to make sure that there wasn't any chance that somebody would say, it didn't really happen. 40 days, there were over 500 witnesses to the resurrected Christ, and every one of his followers would die a gruesome death except for John, and his life was pretty easy. He was only dipped in boiling oil and then sent to live on an island working, a work island, when he was about 75 years old. He was dipped in hot oil. So his life was pretty easy compared to the others. Maybe not, I'm kidding, right? That's what happened to John. Every single one of them held to that truth all the way to their death. Any criminal science investigator will tell you, you cannot convince 11 men to hold to a lie to the point of their death. It would be impossible. It must be true. It must be true. One of them would crack, one of them would crack. The resurrected Jesus The resurrected Jesus. He walked around. Here's a beautiful part of the story, and I'm going to finish with this. This is so important. Jesus, when he was walking around with his disciples, and this is in John chapter 20, you can look at it, verse 22, he looks at them and he says, He's about to go, and he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is what we call the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When you're saved, we believe the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in you when you get saved. The disciples, they didn't get that until after Jesus' death and resurrection. And Then he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then right before he left, he had already breathed on them, said, receive the Holy Spirit. Right before he left, he looked at them and said, and just wait. In a few days from now, oh, the Holy Spirit's gonna come and he's gonna empower you and you're going to be my witnesses, and it's going to be beautiful. Ten days later, after his ascension, Pentecost came and radically changed the church. You went from 120 believers to over 5,000 in just a few days. They didn't even know what to do with it. Guys, the power of the Holy Spirit come upon us to empower us to be teachers, to be evangelists, to use these gifts that we have. Jesus promised to his believers. So we're gonna move into a time of communion now. And the beautiful thing about the story of the cross is that it doesn't end in this book. The beautiful thing about the story of the power of God's Holy Spirit is that while he resides in you, He wants to overflow you. He wants to use you in a mighty way. So let's pray together. Let's prepare our hearts to be able to celebrate the blood, the body of Jesus that makes us holy and pure and makes us a dwelling place for that Holy Spirit. And let's pray that he would use us in power for his glory. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Lord. Just be with us, Lord, as we prepare our hearts, as we reflect on the beauty of what you did on the cross. We love you, Jesus. Meet us where we're at. Forgive us of our sins. Lord, we thank you so much, Jesus. This is Pastor Daniel Williams with Redemption Church. Thank you so much for listening to this message. You can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube, so you never miss a message. The mission of Redemption Church is to pursue and to proclaim Jesus, and we would love to have you partner with us. Feel free to share these messages with your family and friends. And also, if you'd like to donate to the ministry, go to redemptiondb.com. God bless you.